Hey there, and welcome. This is the Skins Podcast, produced by the Facade Tectonics Institute. With invited industry thought leaders, we take on all things building skin. Welcome. This podcast is part of a series focused on a new design and education paradigm that is based on diversity, equity, and inclusion. I am Alexandra Blakesley from Technoform, and I have the honor of being joined today by a guest that needs no introduction. She was the 12th African-American woman to be licensed as an architect, the first to be promoted to full professor of architecture, and the second to be elevated to fellowship in the American Institute of Architects. She is a distinguished professor, having served at several universities and is currently on the faculty at Parsons School of Design. Please welcome Dr. Sharon Agreta Sutton. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me and also for a set of very interesting questions uh, to talk about. For sure. Happy, happy to discuss. So back in 2017, you published a book about your experience being recruited by Columbia University and entering the field of architecture called When Ivory Towers Were Black, a story about race in America's cities and universities. What are some of the key experiences that led you to write that book? Well, it was a 10-year process to write it, so it required a lot of motivation to get through all of the stumbling blocks, but they were, I had very strong motives. And one of them was to disrupt the pipeline myth that it seemed to me that every conversation that I was involved in that had to do with how to increase the, how to change the demographics of the profession is always, oh, we'll have to start making a pipeline. We need to start in, we, we need to get them when they're young. And I got so sick of hearing that for 50 years, which did really very little to change the profession. Meanwhile, there were huge numbers of people who had already gone through architecture and dropped out mm-hmm. because it didn't suit them. And so, and the, and the conversation wasn't, you know, how can we transform the profession so people don't drop out of it? So I wanted to disrupt the pipeline myth by showing that if an institution transformed itself, it could not only recruit the people directly from where they were working or going to school, but that it could retain them and that they could be successful. So that was one story. The other story was that I just wanted to... I wanted to make something that had become invisible, visible. I left the country in 1971. And when I came back, the civil rights movement had disappeared. Nixon was elected before I left in 1969. But the whole, I mean, my mother was talking about Tricky Dick by the time I got back because the civil rights movement had been replaced thoroughly by the war on drugs and the whole effort to transform America had turned into something quite evil. 
And, and meantime, the whole thing that happened at Columbia had vanished, vanished into thin air. So I, I couldn't make the civil rights movement reappear, but I certainly wanted the story. Uh, my that's uh, Lady Day is joining us in this conversation. <laughs> Parakeet, she helps me tell all these stories, <laughs> and there's no way to shut her up. No, there's no, no turning off the bird. Uh, at any rate, um, I I wanted to make the story visible. I thought it was a very special story that people should know about, that it shouldn't be disappeared. And I could see that Columbia wanted not just the School of Architecture, but the university wanted to have its own version of the student rebellion that had happened there. And I wanted to tell my version of not only what happened during the insurrection, but what happened to people as a result of the recruitment effort that went on and their success in the field. So I was very motivated to, to uncover the story and to somehow figure out how to get it published and um, written in a way that people would want to read it. That's great. It's, it's a really interesting topic. And it's I, I think you were living in such a unique time period as well. So moving into education and professional practice today and where we're at with the, the industry as a whole and architecture as a practice, the National Council of Architectural Registration Boards in their latest 2020 report stated that Black or African-Americans continue to be underrepresented in the field compared to U.S. census data. Only 1.9% of architects are Black or African-American today. So how do you think as an industry, we can really ensure diversity both in design, in education, and professional practice? Well, when you say only 1.9, I have to smile because that's twice the number <laughs> it was when people started counting, which was less than 1%. So the number has gone up, and I suppose there's a, a commitment on the part of NOMA and AIA to bring it to 5,000, which would be representative of the population, depending on who's counting what. I think by 2030, I, I, I forget the exact year, but at any rate, that same report that you are referring to says that whites are more likely to pass the exam than people of color, uh, that men are more likely to pass the exam than women, and that younger people are more likely to pass than older people, and that they've had a uh, people who specialize in looking for bias in questions look at the exam and say that it's not, the exam does not have a bias, that it's life experiences. And the, and there, the imp implication is that it's about education. But my belief is that it's more than, it's, it's not just that people of color don't have the same privileged education. It's that they have different life experiences. They have different interests, different values. And that this way that we have 
defined architecture and the route into it and how you practice it is so narrow. And I didn't make this up yesterday. I wrote an article about this, I believe, in 1991 in Progressive Architecture before AIA eliminated progressive architecture being too critical of the profession. The, the problem was the narrowness of the field, that it addresses a very narrow range of problems in the built environment that don't concern people of color. And that if you want to get more people of color, you have to deal with those problems and you have to deal with making a profession that allows and that values different kinds of contributions. I just got a note from my school to this morning saying, we, we want to publicize student work. So submit three to five students' names so we can put their work on social media. Well, my students are working in teams. They're not working individually. Different ideology. And, and what about the students who are not in the studio. I have a very interesting seminar. Shouldn't we be publicizing what they're doing? So we, we have this very narrow conception that unless we transform that, I feel that even if we get to the 5,000, that they will not be representative of the Black experience in America. Mm -hmm. They will be representative of a privileged percentage of the population. Uh, so we will not be addressing the problems that the typical person of color experiences in their environment. That makes complete sense. Apologies for noise interruption for my computer. <laughs> well, Lady Day has quieted down. So. <laughs> No, that's so, uh, it's really interesting you, your, your perspective, because I, you know, I'm going to Pratt in the evenings after, after my, my day job. And I'm in, I'm not an architect by background, but I'm doing this uh, sustainable environmental systems program. And it's very inter interdisciplinary and you have people that are coming from so many different backgrounds and fields. And I often see this like conflict happening where we have these like institutional norms that like, okay, this is the way it should be done, or this is what's considered good, or this is what's considered, you know, bad, or, you know, not at the, whatever the standard or bar that we've set. And, and I think that translates into, you know, the professional practice too. And I totally agree with you. I mean, I think there needs to be more space for these different, uh, different ideologies, different experiences, um, and really bringing them to the forefront because the, um, as you say, the numbers kind of are not fully representative of the reality. And then um, also, I, I also wonder about your, what you said before about retention, you know, even if you meet these numbers, then how do you, how do you really ensure that you're retaining those people and that they're actually wanting to be still in the field. And that time. you're doing the work that needs to be done, uh, which we will get to later in the interview, that, you know, if there's only certain kind of work that gets valued and rewarded, there's other work that doesn't get done. 
And, uh, you know, we have, we're experiencing one crisis after the next, you know, we have to, to have the people who have the interest in addressing those kinds of crises. Definitely. So I'm curious about your thoughts on how design can be approached to make buildings more accessible and inclusive to all people. One of my educators at Pratt Institute, Sophie Joseph, recently introduced me to a talk by Jason Allen Pizant called On Being a Black Body in Nature, A Walking Lyric, where he explains his experience as a Black body feeling excluded from spaces in nature based on our behaviors and then ultimately based on the way in which those spaces were designed in the first place. And I think the building skin is no exception and can really act as this metaphorical barrier to entry into a space or conversely provide a feeling of inclusion to enter um, or exist inside of a space. So what comes to mind for you when you think of inclusive design and how have you approached this in your own work as a thought leader and educator? Yeah, well, I I guess I don't focus on the building, but on the place, which I found the the video to be very interesting in talking about place. So my interest is in the neighborhood rather than the building. And as a matter of fact, I have now five years been working on a book about how young people uh, try to make their neighborhoods more inclusive. And kind of beginning with Ivan Illich's framing of the neighborhood in which he borrows from the pre-industrial concept of the, the commons as the space that lies outside of individual thresholds that provides the things that you need for survival. You know, some of the things are tangible things like schools and, you know, streets and whatnot. And then some of things are intangible, like safety, like culture. And then uh, there's the very important thing in the commons is participation, being able to participate in deciding what happens in your community is really an aspect of the commons. It's something that John Dewey talked about when he talked about democracy, that if poor people are excluded from the commons, they are not able to participate in its shaping and it diminishes the quality of the commons for everybody. So I've been looking at how young people participate in shaping their com- their commons, their neighbor commons. And they've been doing that you know, throughout the, the century, the 20th century, beginning in the 1920s, working on a number of issues from labor rights uh, to civil rights. We, you know, we, we're all familiar with the lunch counter sit-in that you know, really juiced up the civil rights movement was really a bunch of teenagers sitting in at a lunch counter. Uh, And preceding that were students, black students, rebelling against their colleges, the historically black colleges, which were being run in a very patriarchal manner. So teenagers and, you know, looking at, at calling young people somebody from about 15 to about 28 or so 
they've had a big uh, role in advancing inclusivity in this country because they have a lot of courage. You know, they and sometimes their methods have been peaceful and sometimes they have not been. But I think at this point, uh, and I got this idea from a, a woman who lived to be 100 named Grace Lee Boggs, who was a civil rights activist uh, for her entire life. She was actually trained to be an academic. She's a Chinese-American woman who was discriminated against and ended up, rather than being an academic, being an activist, marrying an a black man and moving to Detroit and working on a lot of a number of protests and toward the end of her life thinking, you know, we have to go beyond protest and fix these problems and fix them hands on. And that resonated with me because I've been working hands on. I mean, that's what I did for my doctoral dissertation, actually, and, and a program that I developed at the University of Michigan and continued at the University of Washington is really working with young people hands on to improve their community so that, you know, using your imagination to improve the place where you live, whether it's, you know, it's by planting food or by cleaning up playgrounds or rivers or whatever, that that had been part of my work. So when I read this by Grace Lee Boggs, that this is a new form of activism, because uh, I'd always felt a little bit silly saying, you know, you should do what you can to improve your neighborhood. But when she framed it as activism, I took that idea and looked at the programs that I had been working with and reframed what they had been doing as something I refer to as place-based activism to improve the commons or to improve neighborhoods. Uh, and, and then this idea spilled over into my own work. The Center for Architecture in New York uh, had a competition about designing more inclusive commons. And my team is you know, borrowing from the teenagers uh, to look at how uh, the, the center's idea about an inclusive commons would be that it would be physically accessible, kind of a universal design that everybody would be able to get every place. But we're saying, no, yes, you, you need to be able to get every place, but you also need to have income. You need to have work. You need to have education. You need to have all of the things that the commons in that historical sense of sustaining life and allowing you to participate in making that, that makes the commons. So I've been working both in my own practice on this idea of making a more inclusive commons and reframing what young people are doing in their after-school programs as making a more inclusive neighborhood through participation. Wonderful to hear. So we have a set of architecture, engineering, construction practices and design principles that we utilize day in and day out, building on what you just talked about with place-based activism. What paradigms do you think we need to shift? Mm -hmm. 
Well, one thing that came out of the, that is coming out of the work on the commons with the Center for Architecture is the importance of history. So uh, we're, we're looking, you know, there's something that's happening across the country with black neighborhoods. And we're looking in particular at the neighborhood where I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's actually not the exact neighborhood. It's the neighborhood next to where I grew up, which is the largest historically African-American neighborhood in Cincinnati called Avondale. And Avondale is like neighborhoods all over the country. The history, the, the historical arc is that when I was growing up, they these neighborhoods were segregated. And there was a good part of segregation. Segregation was... Um, not all bad, because it meant that every all black people live together, poor people, well-to-do people, and they generated a lot of culture. I mean, Harlem being the outstanding example of that, where people came from all over the country to do art and to write poetry and to write literature in Harlem. But all of these communities were cultural hotbeds you know, from cooking to gardening to weaving to whatever. And then came the civil rights movement and desegregation and also came urban renewal. Urban renewal, you know, and the civil rights movement inspired white flight. And it also allowed uh, the well-to-do Black people to move out of these neighborhoods. And then urban renewal sliced them up. Mindy fully loved tells the best story about that, of root shock, of literally, you know, these highways going through communities as it went through my community and and really ripping them apart. And people uh, who were left behind reacted to that ripping apart and, re- and rebelled and did their own ripping apart. They, there were these riots that burned the rest of what was left after urban renewal. And that that destruction, which happened in the 70s and late 60s and 70s, really beginning in the 50s with the highway construction. So there was a a period of destruction that, that went on and it lay dormant and lay dormant until very recently when white people and well to do people thought, well, you know, cities are not so bad. We're, we're tired of living on this highway. Let's get back to the city and let's gentrify it. Let's fix it up. And the people who were left there for um, many years, for 40 years, are now being displaced. And that's that story is happening all over the country. So my team has been looking at Cincinnati as a case study of this story that is being repeated every place. Uh, so, and and one thing that has has come out that, you know, when we go into these communities to to fix them up and they have to be fixed up, is that you need to know the history. So that's one thing. The tool that we need is the ability to do historical research and and not just you know knowing what happened ten years ago, but to know the ecological and the cultural history that happened way back. 
you know, before colonization, to know how these places got to be the way they got to be. So that's one thing, history. More specifically, and this is something I have so much trouble getting my students to do, is to draw places in context. There's this thing with architects and the interior designers drawing spaces that have no context. You know, I'm sitting in my living room in my little apartment and I have my furniture arranged, not because of the way the room is, because of what's outside of the room. What I want to see when I'm sitting at my desk. I have my bedroom arranged so that I can see the pigeons on the roof across the street. When I wake up, you know, I decided where I put the stuff in the room because of what's outside of the room. To get students to consider what is outside of the space when they're making it is like I you know, I lose my voice trying to say over and over, could you not in the pavement there at the wall, just take it outside? Could you show the bushes? <laughs> and and people are like, she doesn't. I don't think she knows anything about architecture. <laughs> so and then there's a second thing that I think is even harder to that that's just a matter of will and and realizing that the the context of the space is very important. But then I think we need a whole methodology of being able to study the lived experience of a space. There's a group called Black Space that put out a manifesto. And so, and I, I'm, I'm always amazed at how accurate it is in identifying these new tools that you're talking about. The, the first one that I talked about in history, they say, reckon with the past to know the future. But they also talk about the, in being able to understand the lived experience of space. And so we need to have tools that we could study the lived experience. You know, what, what happens when you're in your apartment or you're in your classroom and there are interactions between people and the people, the people's interactions are actually changing the space and being able to study it, not as a, as a static object, but as an object that's in motion with people interacting with it. And I'm not sure what that would be like, but I know that we have fantastic tools. And so thinking of how we could use them to do spatial ethnographies, I think would be a very interesting idea. That's fascinating. You spoke about coming from Cincinnati. I, I'm from Pittsburgh area originally, but I, Ohio is like my, I consider it my second home because I was living there for, for a long time. Um, I went to school there for undergrad there and lived in Cleveland for, for several years. And it's interesting what you're talking about in terms of history, because I, I saw it also in Cleveland too, like it's so segregated and someone coming to visit there, like you go to certain neighborhoods and you would, you know, at a surface, you have this experience with it and it's, 
there's just so much history that like led up to that point to have a neighborhood be, you know, a certain way or a different way, you know, it's just, it's really, really interesting. And it's even today, like even after a lot of work that's been done to try to desegregate, there's still so much, so much segregation that happens in that city alone for, for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Well, you know, in my housing seminar, we use as a text, the color of law, which tracks all of the legal mechanisms that the United States government used to segregate. And so that the students get an idea that of the depth of the segregation, this is not something that happened accidentally. Mm -hmm. But then I had a guest speaker who went even further back than the color of law does to the Homestead Act and talked about, you know, the Native Americans who had no concept of property, of owning land. Land belonged to the community, didn't belong to people. And it was a huge responsibility for taking care of it, not for owning it, making profit on it. And they were somehow chipped out of it. And then white men who had the right to vote and decide things created something called the Homestead Act that gave 160 acres to any other white man as property. So you gave something that belonged to a community to individuals to own as property which created their wealth. So, I mean, the, it, it, if, if you start looking at the history of things, you begin to understand the enormity of the problem we have to solve. It's, it's like transforming the profession in order to get more people of color in it. It's not just, oh, we'll have a recruitment program and people will come and and be happy. There's a deeper problem here that we have to reckon with. Reckon with the past, as Black Space says. We can't can't go to the future till we reckon with that really incredible past and, and, and know about it. Definitely. So I'm going to shift gears to a question that I I just have a personal curiosity of. So having a background in music is something we we share in common. Um, I I grew up playing piano my whole life and um, have also a degree in music from my past life. Um, And for me, it really left a mark on the way that I approach just my work and my life, having come from, from that background. And I was curious, how has your past life in music, having played the French horn, how has that influenced your approach to design and education? Yeah. Well, it's influenced everything. I mean, in, in recent years, as things are, as we're on Zoom, people say it's literally become my trademark because when I'm signing on to Zoom, people say, Sharon's coming. We can hear the classical music before you can see me. But in fact, being a musician shaped the way I look at the world and particularly knowing that if you practice, you can do anything. 
So the registration exam was not hard for me. I practiced. I set up my apartment. I turned off the telephone. I set the alarm for the time. You know, I took the exam back when you had to do, I think, I forget how many hours it was that you were given to uh, pass the exam. I did it in New York City. So there were 900 people in the Coliseum lined up in desk. You had to carry up the escalator your 30 by 40 portfolio with all of your drafting stuff in it. You got a picnic table, you set it up and you got so many hours to pass this exam. So I practiced that at home. You know, I got out the, my, my portfolio and I, I did the whole thing. I, I had a dress reverse and you could send the exam to a place and they would grade it and give it back to you. I got my grade back. So I did it over again so I could pass it better. It was an open book exam. So you could take all your books. So I marked all my books. I studied things and I knew what they were going to ask the questions on. And I put little markers in. I don't think they had sticky tapes then, but I figured out some way of mark. And I looked up every question. Even if I knew the answer, I looked up the question to make sure I knew the answer. I did it right. I practiced it. It was easy. It didn't mean I was a good architect. It meant I knew how to practice. And that I was willing to spend the time to, you know, there's, there's no white magic here. You know, they give you the test and you practice. So that's one thing that I, I, I learned about it. it. It also, it taught me about perfection that, and self-correcting. You know, when you practice, and you know this, that you're listening to what you're doing and you, the piano has more notes. The French one doesn't have that many notes. <laughs> so <laughs> you're doing the same thing over and over again. You're listening and you're seeing, can I do this better? And you do it by yourself and you're self-correcting and then you go take your lesson and your teacher shows you that you didn't do it quite right. And you you continue to try to make, to work toward perfection and to set your own challenges. So that's, that was really important. And it certainly, you know, is something that I, is the way I write books. I mean, the last, this last book that I wrote, went out for external review three times. So three times. And the reviewers didn't always agree. So, you know, continuing to rewrite the same book, it's about 250 pages, to tell the story over and over again, to see what other people don't think is quite right, and to continue to try to perfect the story is something I learned as a musician. It's just fundamental. I love that. That's so, so interesting to kind of get into your brain a bit. It made some nice assignments before we had to do everything to prepare students to pass the exam. That is before uh, education became job training. I used to give assignments asking students to design spaces that were pieces of music. And that was the most fun part of teaching. That's so cool. <laughs> really cool. 
So what advice would you give to any young designer who might be hesitant to enter this field, especially in cases where they aren't seeing many people that look like them or that they identify with in the professional practice? Stop looking for people who might look like you. That's sort of like the pipeline thing to me. Get over it. You know, look for people who will help you be the best that you can be. They may look like you and they may look like somebody else. The people who look like you may not be helping you. Stop looking for people who look like you. That's silly. I, I guess one other piece of advice I would, is learn to be learn to be uncomfortable. You have to be comfortable in your own skin. And that may involve being uncomfortable. Things are just not easy and you have to. <laughs> And you have to be willing to just do that. I totally relate to that as a woman. Like I, I'm a mechanical engineer by training and there were like maybe less than 10 out of like a class of 300 when I started in school and it was like really intimidating and you just, yeah, totally have to just embrace the awkwardness about it and the, you know, feeling of being odd and strange and out of the norm. I mean, that's another actually, uh, it's just popping into my mind, another way that music helped me because I'm a performer. So, <laughs> you know, there I was the only one and I just perform. <laughs> so you're all looking at me. Here's the show. Exactly. that. <laughs> <laughs> So final question, what would you recommend to organizations like us at Facade Tectonics Institute who want to be inclusive stewards in developing the next generation of architects, engineers, and construction professionals? Yeah. Well, I think look outward at the problem. We, we spend too much time looking inward to say, how, how can we transform ourselves? But really, we have to the world out there is just filled with all of these challenges. You know, what are those challenges and how can we support people, encourage them to have the courage to take on those challenges and to support their creativity in dealing with those. I, I went to a thesis review. Yeah, uh, was like the mid-review for thesis, master's thesis yesterday. And the students were all looking at big problems, big social problems, big ecological problems, and having trouble. And then they would get to some very simple spatial solution. Well, I'll make this. And I, I really encourage them not to damp down their big vision of the problem, even if they didn't come up with a spatial solution. And I asked their teacher, I said, do they have to design a space? You know, could it be a process? Could it be just an analysis of the problem? You know, all of these things that are going on in the world may not have spatial solutions, but they may benefit from having people who are trained in thinking about space. 
with thinking about how these problems affect people three-dimensionally. So that's what I would recommend is to look at the problems and support people in figuring out because we don't, I don't know how to solve this problem, but I have, I'm convinced that young people can find out the answer if I give them the rope to do so. Well, thank you, Sharon, so much for your time. Thanks for sharing your experience and insight. I learned a lot hearing you talk today, so I really appreciate it. For listeners, please keep an eye out for Sharon's upcoming book, A Pedagogy of Hope, Pursuing Democracy's Promise Through Place-Based Activism, which is in production and will be released in February 2023. Join us for the next part of our series featuring Damali Lawrence of Perkins and Will as she explores who builds our buildings. From the Facade Tectonics Institute, I am Alexandra Blakely, and please check out our website for other podcasts on all things building skin. 